picking up right where we left off, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20 in verse 33. And so basically what we've done the last couple of weeks, I try to have a clean break, but we've been trying to cover ground. We're kind of in a place in uh, 1 Samuel where it's a lot of story and a lot of history. And, and without a doubt, it's the Word of God. And whenever we're studying the Word of God, we're always looking for one thing. And everybody knows what that is, right? What are we looking for as we study the Bible? Genesis to Revelation. Thank you, Susan. There's one person that, that knows the Bible in here. Um, so for the rest of you, um, the Sunday school class where you get the beginner stuff is over there. I'm going to... Um, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, it's Jesus. We're always... It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. The Old Testament, the New Testament. You know, if Moses was here who wrote the first five books of the, of the Bible, he would tell you that it was about Jesus. And if Isaiah was here... if um, Daniel was here. They would tell you that it's about Jesus. And so obviously as we go through, the focus is always Jesus. The Old Testament is an index finger that points to the cross and the New Testament points back to the cross. Everything meets at the cross. And, and, but it's about Jesus. And so as we go through the Old Testament, you know, I often pause in, in the New Testament and I'll read it. We're not going to do it tonight, but, but basically it's a couple places in the New Testament. The one I think of immediately is in, um, second Corinthians chapter 10 or first Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul begins to rehearse the Old Testament history and, and how it all applies to Jesus and that they were all pictures of things to come, Paul says. And so again, the, 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 the things that we're going through, and we've done that, we spent a lot of time in uh, 17, and so anyways, I'll stop babbling, because all that is to do is an excuse to tell you that I'm trying to move a little bit faster through this second half of Samuel. We get to get, be done with Saul. I'm about done with Saul. And what we're going to read tonight is going to turn all of our stomachs. And it's just going to be happy to be done with Saul and move on and get on to the life and ministry of King David in Second Samuel. So we are jamming a little bit. I'm not going to uh, try not to pause too much tonight. But before we start, let's pause. First Samuel chapter 19, or I'm sorry, chapter 20, beginning in verse number 33. So hold the finger there, and, and I want you to turn with me, if you will, after I give you a speech, then I'm going to go fast. We're going to slow down. Um, I, there's something that's just been on my heart tonight. It was on my heart during worship. It's been on my heart for, for really a season right now, a short season. But uh, I shared it with the men Sunday night. I shared it with the church on Sunday morning, and I want to share it with you guys on Wednesday night. But but there there's a... Uh, there's there's such a powerful um, concept and lesson in each one of us um, in our Christianity, and I think really culturally, and what we're trying to do here in Utah, and I think what we're, you know, I think what's important is that we stress for each one of you a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And that's I think what sets us apart. I think that's what, um, you know, and, and again, you don't need a, a pastor, you don't need me, you don't need a priest, you don't need a go-between. That you have direct access to God, you have the same access to God that anybody else does. I don't know anything or have any better access than anybody else, and, and that you know none of these things are beyond your own finding out. That God has given each one of you a personal invitation to come into the throne room of God. It's so radical. And, and it's so like some of the things that happened during the life of Jesus and at the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, it would have had such a cultural impact that, that you and I missed 2000 years later. Now we understand the facts. We understand the, 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 the events, but we miss the impact because we didn't live 
um, in that day, or we didn't live prior to that. For example, one of the things that I share that we miss is, you know, can you imagine if, you know, you, let's say you were, you were 55 years old when Jesus died on the cross. So you had lived 20 something years, um, prior to Jesus being born. And then you, you watched the last three years of his life when he became public at age 30. So you'd have been in your fifties, but you lived under the law of Moses and you went to the temple, you made sacrifices, you made, you, you went to, you went to Passover, you, 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 you followed the law of Moses, you observed the Sabbath, you, you ate kosher, you didn't eat bacon, you didn't eat ham, you know, God bless Jesus. He gave us ham and bacon and, um, <laughs> And, and you didn't have those things. And, and it was very normal. It was very godly. It was, it was cultural. It was, and, and then Jesus dies on the cross. The Holy Spirit um, is poured out on all flesh. That's another one. There's hundreds of these, not hundreds, but there's lots of these things. Um, one of them being the idea that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't, people were not the temple of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That's a New Testament deal. Um, but, but anyway, so you live according to the law of Moses. And then at age 55, living right and living a godly life, according to the scriptures, you now no longer have to eat kosher. You now no longer have to sacrifice sheep on Passover annually for your sins. It's radical. It's, it's, it was so radical. But we, for us, we've never sacrificed sheep. So the fact that we don't sacrifice sheep and we don't follow the law of Moses, we don't keep Sabbath, it just doesn't have the impact, right? Well, well, the thing that we've been talking about recently is the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom when Jesus died. And, and, and that was, uh, among many other, such a radical shift in, in dispensations of time. You know, and, and there's been many dispensations over, you know, the last 6,000 years. We kind of look at maybe two separate dispensations, the Old Testament and, and the New Testament. But technically, there's probably 12 different dispensations. But we have in this, this shift where the, te- the veil of the temple rents from top to bottom. Again, this, this amazing, um, powerful impact that 2,000 years later, we, we don't fully grasp. You know, if you, if you, um, you know, lived and worked in the temple in the days of Jesus or prior from the time of Solomon, one high priest once a year would go into the temple and, and offer sacrifices for the nation of Israel and for the people. And, and, and in, in the, the Holy of Holies in the temple that Solomon built and in the Holy of Holies that was in the tent that Moses built prior to Solomon's temple, it, it was by the will of God, it was where the presence of God dwelt. It, it, was, it was something, you know, that, that God in there was kept the, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments that God wrote on with His hand. The rod that, that Moses, um, the rod of Aaron that budded. The, the, uh, a jar of the manna that was kept in the wilderness. And, and nobody went in. And, and the duty of the, of the, of the Levitical tribe was was so massive that there was it wasn't just one one priest there was a whole tribe of the nation of Israel one twelfth of their population was you know was was Levitical tribes who lived and worked in the temple and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of priests lived and died without ever being called upon to be the one who went into the 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 holy of holies once a year but would have desired, would have, would have lived, would have loved, would have prayed, would have um, been 
chosen the one. Kind of like you guys pray today to be the one that's going to hit the $1.6 billion lottery that's going on right now. And they would have prayed to hit the lottery because it would have been done by lottery, by draft, by lots to decide which high priest goes in. And, oh, by the way, um, where, where is this lottery anyways? Which lottery is it? It's, so it's like multi-states or... It's one? The 1.6 got one? South Carolina? When, 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 when did that get decided? Yesterday. So... Um, I, I saw this thing again today with, with all this hoopla, but I've, I've shared it actually before in a message about the, 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 the results of those in the last 10 years that have won the lottery. And it's, it's astonishing how, how the majority of them say that winning the lottery is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Destroyed their life. One guy, um, this the, the, lots of stories, and I, I'm, again, I'm, I'm rabbit trailing here, but I'm, I'm digressing, and I'm, I'm supposed to be moving through First Samuel to this evening. But this one guy, he um, at the time, and I forget when it was, it was like in the '90s, he won the largest um, jackpot that that currently in the United States history of, of lottery. So now it's a new record as of this week. But um, and I forget what it was. It was like it was like two hundred and no, it was three hundred and fifty million, and so he he had his option, and after taxes, so you know they either pay you over your lifetime or you get a lump sum. So his lump sum came out to one hundred and fifteen thousand of three hundred fifty million. So who's really making the money in the lottery? So the taxes and all that stuff. So they they so he gets up, but he got a check. I mean, still right, the dude got a check for a hundred and fifteen million dollars. So you know what the first thing he did? He wrote a check of to 10% to his Christian ministries. And the article just says Christian ministries. So I don't know if that means his church or a local church or just in general. But it was like $15 million he gave to, to his tithe. And then, and then uh, six months later, he was in a strip club. And he had, he had $500,000 in cash in the trunk of his car. And somebody broke in his car and stole it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you go from writing a check to $15 million to your church to six months later being in a strip club with $500,000 cash in your trunk. But story after story after story. One guy, he, he bought two houses in Palm Beach, Florida. He bought a plane that he could fly between his houses. His neighbors were complaining because they said the front of his driveway looked like a car lot. He had a million dollars worth of cars parked in his driveway. Um, Lamborghinis and Porsches. And within 10 years, he, he was so broke and so in debt that his family was living in a storage unit. True stories, true story after true story after true story after true story of, of the destruction that the lottery has been to, to people's lives. And so anyways, I digress. All right. So um, that had nothing to do. That had it back to the priest, right? The priest being the one wanting to go into um, the Holy of Holies and, and never getting to go, right? And, and, and that one person once a year. So um, even if you figure all of from, let's say, Moses, when he built the temple in the, in the wilderness to, to the time of Jesus, we're talking about 2,500 years tops. 
once a year, that's 2,500 people, maybe the same guy multiple times, so maybe not even that many, people that actually went into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And today, there's 7 billion people on planet Earth, and Jesus said every one of you invited every day to come into the Holy of Holies. That the veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom, and now you're all welcome to come in. That's radical. And, and, and what happens, and what we've been talking about, is, is each one of us, really taking advantage and really understanding the responsibility that we have to, to walk with Jesus. And, and I think part of the, the, the deal for me, really, and, and, and what, what am I trying to accomplish? I mean, I'm trying to be a mature Christian. I'm trying to grow in my Christianity. And, 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 and just as the Bible says, you know, develop maturity. And Paul said that, you know, that in Hebrews, he says that there's a season when you're a new believer that you drink milk and you, you, you do baby things because you're a baby Christian and, and you're growing and you're learning and you need milk. But Paul says there comes a season in your Christian walk where it's ridiculous if you're still drinking milk, paraphrase, that now it's time that you eat meat. You know, at what age do babies eat meat or do, do kids? You know, I can remember with my boys. I don't know what it is about, about a dad and his sons, but I remember the first time, you know, like I'm eating steak and I tear off a piece and I hand it to my son, you know, it's like, and he eats a bite of steak. I don't know what it was. It was just like, yeah, that's my son. He eats steak, you know, like, I don't know, four, three, five. I, I, I don't know at what age, but at some point you can eat meat, but, but, but babies, right? Don't eat meat. And, 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 and God uses that as an example. Paul uses that as an example to say that it's natural, that we take bottles and we drink bottles. But my son today, who I was so proud of as a young man when he first ate steak, if he was drinking a bottle, it wouldn't be very cute. I wouldn't be very proud of him because he's, he's matured enough now that... And so God says there's a season for us as Christians that, that we're supposed to grow, right? And, and have that maturity. Now, now, one of the things that happens in church, and, and, and I think church across the nation and, and you know, all over the world, really, because church is church. I've been to churches in the Philippines. I've been to churches in Mexico. I've been to churches in Israel. I've been to churches in different countries and different places. And, and you know what's interesting is, to, for the most part, church is the same. When I went to church in the Philippines, we sang five songs. The pastor made some announcements, and then he preached for 50 minutes. I'm not kidding. It was like, it was church. And it was a Filipino pastor and it was an indigenous church. It was a big church. But church was church, whether we're in the Philippines or in the United States. And, you know, I hear some of the pastors say, oh, you know, the church in the West or the church in the United States is weak. And, you know, and to some degree, I, I, I get it. There, there's probably part of us that are. And part of what has happened, though, is that we've developed a model in church that that it's the pastor's job it's the church's job to be responsible for your christian growth and, and that you rely on revelation you rely on eating meat and eating steak to to be delivered on sunday mornings to be delivered on wednesday nights and then and then you don't eat for yourself you don't spend time for yourself the rest of the week eating steak and growing when you have the same opportunity the same invitation that, that I have, that anybody has, to be feeding yourself, to be growing yourself. And then, and then you know, we, we look to the church. And, I, you know, I picked on women's retreats and men's retreats and men's discipleship and women's discipleship classes saying that, you know, we, we believe that these are the things that we have to have in order to grow and, and to be mature in our walk. 
And, and part of the message a little bit was, you know, taking it off of my shoulders and putting it back on yours and taking it off of, you know, where it belongs for all of us to wear the same responsibility and the same encouragement and the same call, but really just a kind of a, um, I don't know, put on your big boy pants type of, of, of message and hopefully in, in encouragement that, that you are invited and also responsible to grow in Christ. And, and for us as a church, listen, this, this is so important. And it's such, such, a, such a, a community topic for us as a church. We, we, um, we, we have to develop mature believers in our church. And the only way that, that, that our, our, our believers are going to mature, because what's going to happen is, you know, one thing Chuck used to say about church all the time is he said that healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. So, so what does that mean? Does that, you know, that means it's not necessarily my job to, which, which as a member of the church, I'm doing the same thing, but it's not my job to be inviting people and bringing people and filling the seats up. That's your job. But, but it happens naturally when, when, when you're healthy, when, when you're growing, when you're maturing then you're naturally inviting your friends. You're naturally um, evangelizing and doing the work of an evangelist and, and, and sharing the gospel. And, and then what naturally happens is if the pastor is doing a good job of, of creating maturity. And again, we believe our philosophy, right or wrong, our philosophy is that you, you, you create maturity from people um, through the word of God. And that's why we, we take the stance here that we have a systematic study of the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. A, a lot of the pastors that are my age and younger, you know, 27, 26 year olds that, you know, my age, 27 and, and the ones that are a little bit younger that, you know, so many of them, so many of my friends, some kids I went to Bible college with kids that I taught as a as a young professor in, in Calvary Bible College after graduation that, you know, came up under me that I helped raise up that have started churches and have done works. They've got away from teaching the Bible systematically. And they still teach out of the Bible and, and, and it's working to some degree. But but, you know, still this this kind of fear like that's that that doesn't work. And, you know, and, and I'm just not there. God, God told me, stay the course. Because I prayed and I said, oh, am I supposed to do that? Am I supposed to follow, you know, what's trendy right now and, and what these kids are doing and what's working in other churches? And, you know, and it's great for them. I'm not judging. I'm just saying for me. And our philosophy has been that, that we help create maturity when you meet Jesus personally. And what's the best way for you to meet Jesus personally, for you to spend time? It's, it's by knowing God through the word of God, understanding. And these stories in Samuel, you're like, well, what, how do these apply to my life every day? They, they absolutely apply because you know Jesus, you know the heart of God. And then when you make decisions, when you, when, when you, when you try to find the will and the heart of God, if you know what he's done and what he's like from Genesis to Revelation, it comes natural. It comes natural in hearing and knowing the voice and the, and the will of God. You know, one of the things I did as an assistant pastor um, for a lot of years was I, I had to make decisions, big ministry 3,000, 3,500 people in church on a Sunday morning, you know, a school, K through 12 school, 500 kids in school, Monday through Friday, preschool with 75 kids in the preschool on campus, big thrift store and Bible college. And, and, you know, as a staff pastor, Pastor Gerald wasn't always around. And there was times when um, I had to make decisions 
But I, I knew how it rolled because if I, if I made a decision or if I decided something or if I said something or did something and it got back to Pastor Gerald and it was totally off, he would fix it, he would change it, and he would say, no, that's not what we're doing or no, that's not, that's not right. And then I would look like, you know, egg on my face and <laughs> look silly because, you know, so I just learned like it's easier. I just have to do it one time. If the decision I make is going to reflect what, what his heart and his vision would be. But I had to get to know him. And, and the thing was, I spent a lot of time with him. And I, and, and, I, and I, of course, was in church every Sunday and Wednesday. I heard him teach. I knew his heart. I spent time with him, the weddings, funerals on the side. And, and so I knew his heart on the matter and, and what his heart would be in, in a lot of the decisions. And so when I was making a decision... It, it was. It would reflect what his heart was and what I knew would would come back. And but I had to know his heart, and it, I had to spend time with him, and I had to you know get to know him personally. And 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 as I did that, I could I could know his heart. And 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 knowing the heart of God comes so that when we make decisions, when we when we you know it comes through knowing the heart of God. So anyway, all right. That was a rant. It was a long one. That was supposed to be a short one. So. Um, as, as you turn back to first Samuel chapter 20, um, I am going to just kind of wrap that up with what, this is what we've been sharing on Sundays and, and, and this week. And so the, the crux of that, the illustration that we used was in the old Testament, um, we, we talked about the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies once a year. Well, very similarly, Moses had a very, um, special relationship with God. And Moses would go alone with God and then he, and then God would spend time with him up on the mountain on Sinai. When God gave the law of Moses to Moses, when he wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger and Moses carried him down the mountain, God said to Moses, I'm going to show up and I'm going to meet with you on the top of Mount Sinai. And he said, prepare the people, the nation of Israel. We studied this through Exodus. Um, those of you that have been here on Wednesday nights, we, we, we walked right through this, Exodus 20. And, and, and God said, Moses, when I show up, make sure that all the people are far away from and they get down. They're not anywhere near there because if they get too close to where I'm going to show up, they're going to die. And he said, make sure there's no livestock on the mountain because they're going to die when I show up. And so the, the God showed up in thundering and lightning in this particular case. And the people were afraid and, and the people saw this. And there's a verse there where the people said to Moses, no, it's okay, Moses, we get it. You go up and then tell us what God said. And it was right. And it was the model and it was the way that God allowed it. Now, many times nobody was allowed up there with God except for Moses. There was a couple special occasions where God allowed Moses to bring Aaron, where God allowed Moses to bring Joshua on um, um, on another occasion, another um, situation where Moses, um, some of the elders were allowed for a brief moment to be near there. But Moses himself would go up on the mountain. And, and, and that is good for that past dispensation before the veil of the temple rent, before God filled every one of you individually and personally with the Holy Spirit. But we don't have that same model. But unfortunately, again, what I talked about the church in the West and one of the weaknesses and one of the things we point out, something that I've talked about over the years, but God's put it back on my heart recently to say that, you know, we, we, you can't be content just letting Moses go up on the mountain. And I don't care whether it's me or your favorite podcast or your favorite radio program or your favorite book. If you're content letting somebody else go up on the mountain for you, and then come back and tell you what God said, 
You're going to struggle in, in growing personally and intimately. And why would we, when the God of heaven, when everybody and their mother would have, would have begged to be chosen to go inside the Holy of Holies, to go up on the mountain and meet with God by themselves, and now the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, has invited you with Moses to come up and meet with God. And so often we say, oh no, just let, just, just let Billy Graham go up. I'm good right here. I'll wait to hear what he says. Just let Greg Laurie go up. Just let the pastor go up. Just let my favorite author go up. Just let my favorite podcast person go up and tell me what God said. When we all have the opportunity to do that, you have the opportunity to be intimate with God. Amen? Amen. Chapter 20, verse 33. Um, It says, Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined in his father to kill David. I'm sorry. I got to check. What's that? Um, so, um, do you remember, we actually had talked about this and, and just real simply, Saul was always with this spear and and Saul constantly was casting this spear at David and tried to kill David many times. And we talked about not being a person who's casting spears because he was casting him at what he thought was his enemy. Although David wasn't his enemy for so many, so many years. And eventually He cast that same spear here now at his own son. And so Jonathan arose from the table with fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning and Jonathan went into the field in the time appointed with David and a little lad was with him. So actually we covered this last week, right? You remember the story um, of the lad and, um, and Jonathan And then David and the holy bread. That's why I paused because I knew we kind of had covered some of that already. Let's actually go to verse uh, chapter 22. Um, We're going to pick up there. We covered David and the holy bread. Um, You guys remember the story? David David ate the holy bread. Jesus commented it on the New Testament that he wasn't um, supposed to eat. And then in chapter 22, you guys with me? It says, therefore, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. So look at verse 2 and tell me, and then look around the room and tell me if this is what you see. Everyone who was in debt. Everyone who is discontented, everyone who is in distress. So the, the group that, that gathered around David were people that were distressed. They were in debt. They were discontented. They, they weren't the, um, the cream of the crop. It doesn't say that those that, that graduated from um, the military academy... Those that graduated from Yale, those that were the finest of the CrossFit gym, you know, those that were, were, were the, the top of the top begin to gather around David. It's this, this kind of group of ragtag, just everyday people. A lot of them had normal problems like you and I have, and they begin to gather around David. Now, what's so powerful is these 400 men, um, 
Time doesn't permit, but I, you, you can look it up. Look up the mighty men of David and you can read the stories of the accomplishments of integrity and valor and, and war. And some of these guys in, in things that are really hard to, to actually wrap your mind around where, you know, in a battle, one of these guys, you know, killed 400 guys in one battle where, where these men, David, at one point, he's there. And before Jerusalem was in their control, David said, oh, how I would love a drink of water from the well. And two of David's men, just, just because David said that, they, they, they risked their lives and they snuck through enemy territory. And, you know, and, and they went in and they drew water from this well that was this crazy, um, mission that they went on and they came back and they brought David's water from the well. And David, if you remember, he dumped the water out and he said, I can't drink that. You guys risked your lives to go get that. But these men become very accomplished. And what's interesting is, you know, if you look at the the 12 men that Jesus chose, it's very similar. And the thing was, again, Jesus didn't choose the cream of the crop. Jesus didn't choose I mean, maybe one, you could argue that, that Paul was kind of the cream of the crop of his day. But other than the Apostle Paul, the, and even he was a, was a murderer who was killing Christians at the time Jesus called him. But um, the men that he chose, Peter, Peter was a fisherman, uneducated. He, he was, you know, many of them were, a couple of them were fishermen. No different than today. We have commercial fishermen and they were just normal, everyday people that, that, that Jesus chose. I, I, know, I love what Gail Irwin says about, you know, it says that before Jesus chose those 12 men, and one of them he chose was Judas Iscariot. And, 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 the, Bible, and, and the Bible says that Jesus prayed all night in preparation for calling the 12. And, and Gail Irwin says, you know, Jesus did one of two things that night. Either he blew that prayer or that's what he prayed for, you know? And, and, and so what's, what's encouraging about that is that for you and I, we don't have to feel like, oh, well, the people that God uses, they're, they're a different bunch. No, the people that God uses are everyday people that have problems. And, and that's the people of this room. That's the people that God wants to use. The Bible says that God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And, and it's not an, an, an ability necessarily that God calls because God gives you ability. What God calls is availability. What God calls is people who are willing, who have a heart like David, who, who, who want to be used by God. And, and so here David has this kind of ragtag group. You know, the funny thing is, it's like on a Sunday morning even, you know, you look around the room and you see the people that love God and are serve God. And, and it's so consistent with this kind of this this group that, that David called with the group that Jesus called. And it's just everyday, average, ordinary people who, who respond to the gospel. And it, it's, it, I think it's much more difficult for somebody who's the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and somebody who's, you know, really proud of their accomplishments in their life to, to respond to the gospel, unfortunately. But you know, and, and Jesus calls everyday ordinary people. In verse 3 it says, Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know 
what God will do for me. So David is on the run, as you guys know the story. And so David brings his family to Mizpah and he asks that they could stay there in a safe place. And so um, then it says in verse 4, So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all of that that time and David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. When Saul had heard David and the men who were with him had been discovered, Saul was staying in Gibeah near Tamarisk tree in, in Ramah with his spear in his hand. Okay, underline that, highlight that, because that defines Saul. And we've talked about it many times already as going through this, that, you know, Saul was a spear chucker. And, and it's funny that the Holy Spirit records for us. And, and every time you see Saul, who is a type of the Antichrist and who's a bad character, he has this, this spear in his hand and all of his servants standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? And so he's, he's talking to the men who he realizes that many of their hearts are um, turned towards David. And, and he's struggling keeping the people loyal to him because they love David. And so he begins to kind of bribe them or even kind of warn them about, you know, what can David do for you? He can't make you captains of thousands and captains of hundreds. I can do that. I have that power. And all of you have conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals to me. My son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. So he knew that Jonathan and, and David's heart were knit together and that they had made a covenant. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servants against me to lie in wait as it is this day. And so he wants the people to feel sorry for him. That's always a bad place to be. You don't want people to feel sorry for you. And then um, answered Doeg the Edomite who was set over the servants of Saul and said... Do you remember Doeg from our story last week? Anybody? Okay, Doeg was present when David went into the temple and asked the priest if him and his men could eat the showbread, which was forbidden for, the, for anybody but the priest to eat. And then the priest gives David the showbread. And then David said, do you have any weapons? And the priest gave David what? The sword of Goliath. And so, um, but Doeg was just a bystander, but he was there watching it. And, the, and the, the Bible records that Doeg was there. Now Doeg is talking to, um, he's going to become the, the villain, really, really terrible villain. He's talking and he's there in the presence of Saul. And it says, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here am I, my lord. And Saul said, Why have you conspired against me to you and the son of Jesse, that's David, and in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among you of all your servants is as faithful as David? 
Who is the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and who is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to, to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And, and he's telling the truth, right? He, he's honest and he's innocent. And, and Saul is um, a madman who's accusing the priest of conspiring with King David against him. You remember the story. What did King David tell the priest when he asked for the bread and the sword? He lied. Do you remember? Talked about it last week. David lied. And he said, I'm on important secret business for Saul. And everybody in the kingdom, everybody in, the, in Israel knew that David was the son-in-law of Saul. He knew he, they knew he killed Goliath. They knew he was one of Saul's trusted men and advisors and, and his own family member. So when David shows up as the, as the son-in-law of the king, as the, the defeater of Goliath, the one who the women sang, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, the high priest thought nothing of it. And David lied to him and said, oh, I'm on business for Saul. And Saul has sent me on this secret mission. And so when, when Saul's accusing him, he says, come on, man, really? David's your son-in-law. I didn't know nothing of this matter. Of course I helped him, you know. And then in verse 16, it says, and the king said, you shall surely die. What? Ahimelech. Was that coming from back there? You shall surely die, and Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood by him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Somebody say, uh-oh. Man, this dude has hit a whole new demonic low. So Saul is, is you know, we've talked about the progression and now we're there. We've talked about the downward spiral of Saul who started really well. And ends really, 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 really evil in his life. And who started um, with many kind of qualities of Jesus. And he ends his life with, with the qualities of the Antichrist. And there, therefore Saul becomes for you and I um, biblically a type of Antichrist. And so now to the point where he's going to murder the priests of God. Talk about a low. I mean, talk about, you know, how in the world could anybody ever want to kill a pastor? Especially, it took you guys a minute, but you got it. Especially me. No, I'm just kidding. So then it says, yeah, eventually, give them time. That's all right. There's some good churches down the street. Because their hand is also with David and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Somebody say, amen. Amen. You know, it, it... Peter said, right, that that for you and I to obey men is not as important for us to obey God. When he was talking to the high priest, the high priest told Peter and John, he said, no longer preach in the name of Jesus. And Peter said to him, whether, um, you know, for you to decide is up to you. But as for me, we will we will obey the Lord. And they went. And they began to preach the, the word. Paul tells us in, in uh, Romans 13 that as Christians, we're supposed to be law-abiding citizens. That we're supposed to follow the laws of the land. He doesn't want us to be a rebellious bunch. He doesn't want us to be, you know, um, that, that we're supposed to live according to the laws of our society. That's biblical. That's Christian. Until the laws of your society or the laws of your land contradict the laws of God. 
So, you know, in the most part, they don't. For the most part, they, you know, they're okay. There are some areas, but but only when they they contradict. And here these men are not going to obey their king. They're not going to obey their king at the penalty of death because what he's asking them to do is is just completely out of line and, and wrong. And amen that these, these guys don't obey the commandment. But unfortunately, we have a worse villain in the story. Verse 18 says, And the king then said to Doeg, You do it then. You kill the priests. So Doeg said, Okay. And the Edomite turned and he struck the priests and he killed on that day 85. Everybody say 85. 85 men who wore the linen ephod. So 85 men who wore the linen ephod would be the priests of the Lord. And so Saul that day kills 85 priests. Now, did 85 priests help David? No, 85 priests didn't help David. One, one, one priest. And, and he was so evil and he was so, he was so demonic by this point that, that his anger was just to kill them all. So obviously he didn't believe in the good that they were doing. He didn't believe in the ministry that they had, and, and, he, and he just wanted them all dead. And so he doesn't just kill the one who, who, who he could maybe try to, try to justify that, that he conspired with David, which he didn't, and he knew he didn't, but he just goes and kills them all. And, and it just, again, it just shows how far Saul had, had departed from the will of God and the presence of God and, and even a sensitivity to God. The next story we're going to read about Saul is where he, he's, he's consulting witches and mediums to discern the will of God or to, dis, to tell the future. And strictly, strictly forbidden by God to consult spiritists or mediums or tarot cards or horoscopes or any of those things strongly forbidden in the word of God. And, and Saul would have known all of that. And, and Saul, the, you know, as far as he's gone, I guess we shouldn't be shocked when the next thing we see Saul doing is going down to the witch of Endor to, to have her do seances on his behalf. And in verse 19, also Nob, the, city's, the city priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen, donkeys, sheep with the edge of the sword. And now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub named Abba, Abiathar escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So do we, we, we know of a verse 21, we're in verse 21. Do we know of another Saul in the Bible who's killing the Lord's people? Famous Saul, whose name was later changed to Paul. The Apostle Paul becomes a murderer of Christians in the New Testament. Um, but by the grace of God, he's saved um, we're, we're just about done. You guys we will finish 22 and we'll call it a day, but let me rabbit trail just for a second. Cause we started a little late today. I, I saw this, this case, I think I've been telling you guys about it, but there was a Netflix series that was called making a murderer. And it was the story. Um, some of you laugh, you may know, you may not, but it was a, it was a true story of a guy in Wisconsin who, um, served 18 years in prison for rape and then DNA evidence, um, proved him innocent. And so they, they let him out of jail and he sued um, Manitowoc County for $35 million for the wrongful imprisonment um, after doing 18 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And while he was out, he, he went back to jail for a murder of a, of a girl. And, um, and so it's just his story. And now he's in prison for a murder 
that many believe um, he didn't commit. And so um, whether it's true or not, I don't know. You just have to maybe check it out for yourself. But um, the one of the things they did, they interviewed one of these a death row inmate. And and the the brother of the victim of this death row inmate was interviewed, and he was a uh, he was a mayor or something in his town. He was lead prosecutor in this town where his brother's murderer was was on death row, and he was he was a Christian. He was a believer in Jesus, and they asked him if 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 they if he believed that there was hope for um, for. I don't know what the right term is, reconciliation or for restitution or for somebody to change who had committed a capital murder. And this guy who's in Texas as the um, elected official, he he said, well, as a Christian, it would be, and his own brother was murdered. And he said, I, I would be a hypocrite because the apostle Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament himself was a murderer and, and was rehabilitated and was reconciled to God. And was changed and, you know, and so, you know, when you see some of these, these cases and some of these stories, you know, you feel like, like the people who have been convicted are on death row, that they're, they're getting what they deserve. And you, you know, you, you almost feel like you, when you hear of some of the heinousness of their crimes and unfortunately, you know, when you hear of, you see, you see this guy on death row and they tell the story of the murders and the heinous uh, crimes that he committed and, and you, you, then you see him with a cross on his neck talking about Jesus. And you're like, <laughs> you know, it bothers you a little bit in your flesh. Maybe just me, but I always have to check myself, you know, and I always praise the Lord um, and pray they go to heaven and pray that they did somehow, you know, you never know whether their, their conversion is legitimate, but I know that if their conversion or if they desired to convert and, and repent that God would, that that's the amazing grace of God. That's so hard to understand. But it's what's so powerful about Jesus is that the amazing grace of God is sufficient. And the reality is the day that Jesus died, he brought somebody to heaven with him. And the person that he brought to heaven with him by his grace, the day that he died was a death row inmate who was a heinous criminal. And Jesus forgave him on, you know, he, the guy was strapped to the chair or he was hanging on a cross. One of the two, when, when Jesus forgave him. When Jesus showed him the amazing grace of God that just blows you away, blows you away. And then in verse 20, it says, last thing, guys, we're done. I'm just going to read it and we'll call it a day. And now one of the sons, okay, verse 22, I'm sorry, 23 or 22. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all these people and your father's house. Stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life, but be with me and you shall be safe. So David is is wearing this very heavy. He feels like he's responsible because he, in essence, lied to the priest and the priest um, gave him those things. And he knew, David said, I knew. I knew when I seen Doeg there that day that that was going to be a problem and that Doeg was going was gonna to tell Saul and it, and it was going to create a problem. And, you know, you know the thing is, you know, sometimes people want to kill the witnesses, but, you know, David didn't do that. He, he, he let that guy go and he knew Doeg was going to be a problem. And sure enough, Doeg tells Saul and Saul kills the priest. Now, obviously, David can't be 
directly responsible for the death of those priests, but inadvertently his actions and his lies that day, but it was the, it was the evilness and the, the condition of Saul's heart who would have dreamed ever that a king of Israel, a king of Israel, God's king of God's people, would have the ability to kill 85 priests. What an, what an encouraging, uplifting night, huh? <laughs> Just kidding. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Let's stand. Let's pray. Saul's a sucker. That's why I said we were going to try to jam, although I always say that. We never jam too fast, but we will try to pick it up a little bit. I want to be done with Saul. I know. I want to be. The next story we get is where he goes to the Witch of Endor, and um, he meets Michael Jackson there, and they have a seance. And... Um, <laughs> And it goes south. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for um, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you love us, that you died on a cross. We thank you, Lord, as we begun tonight, Lord, with an encouragement to our church, Lord, a reminder, a call of God that each one of us have to grow with you. We have to we have to be intimate. We've been all invited into your presence. We've been invited to open your word. And if we're born again and we're believers, then the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And the Bible says that the word of God is spiritually discerned, which means the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us helps us understand what we read, helps us meet and know Jesus personally and intimately. God, help us to fall in love with Jesus. Lord, help us in our in our devotions, in our personal time. God, help us to develop and continue a, a discipline of, of being Christians, not only um, as something that we do on Sundays and Wednesdays, but just who we are, Lord, every day, all day. And that, Jesus, we would start and end each day with you, that we would walk with you as we rise up, as we lie down, as we go by the way, that we would talk of you with our children. And, Jesus, that, that, that this relationship with you would be on um, going, that it would continue. And we know, Lord, that, that, that Christianity is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And it's something that we'll do for many, many, many years as, and as long as you tarry and as long as we breathe on this earth. And so God, sustain us in that. And Jesus, help us to grow. And Lord, help us to fall in love with you. Help the devotion times and the personal times and the times that we go up on the mountain like Moses did to meet with you that, Lord, that those would be fruitful times. And Jesus, those times would be contagious and or that we would know that you've met with us and you spoke to us. And God, we ask that you administer to each heart that's in here today. And uh, Lord, we thank you that, that we learn this, this depravity of Saul and none of us want to fall. And Saul started well. And as, and as he began to slip in his, in his obedience to you, he, he fell very far. None of us are, are better than Saul. None of us are in a position where we're, we're um, incapable of the same kinds of evil. If, if we don't walk with you. And so, Lord, help us to stay close to you. Help us to know you and walk with you every day. And God, we ask your blessing and, and we give you praise and glory. And Jesus, I, I continue to pray for, uh, for our church and our remodel project. I pray for the missionaries team who's coming up next week and traveling by car, that you would keep them all safe. And God, I pray for vision for um, um, some of the construction problems uh, that need to be solved and um, Lord, for just the details of, of, uh, of the fi finished product, of even the colors that we put on the wall, Lord, um, that it would be your will, that you would uh, help us choose all those things. And Lord, where none of us are um, professional designers, and, and, and Lord, yet you are, God. And so help us in that, God, supernaturally. And Father, we pray for Halloween and pray, Father, that uh, you would help us to reach lost people and love people that come through our doors next Wednesday night. And I pray for... Um, 
uh, for Jackie and Larry that they would have all everything they need by next Wednesday and that you'd raise up people if they're still short and that we'd have all the candy and all the supplies that we need to share the gospel with our community next Wednesday. In Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.